0: Today I'm interviewing Graham Weston, one of the co-founders of a company called Rackspace, and who's now helping to transform San Antonio, Texas, into a city where technology companies thrive. I want you to notice two things in this episode. The first is that Graham is a great storyteller, which is a skill that I've found a lot of successful leaders have. Make sure not to miss the one about how one of his first business partners pulled a gun on him in a meeting. A six-shooter, to be precise. The second thing I've noticed about Graham is how fanatical he is about learning but also in the follow through and engagement to make sure the learning is understood and applied at scale. What's interesting to me is that Graham still operates that way today, even after he's become one of the most successful entrepreneurs on the planet. Finally, I can't introduce this episode without mentioning that Graham is one of the most down to earth and humble people I've ever met, which I think also explains why people are willing to follow him wherever he goes as a leader.
1: You're listening to Action Path, hosted by Steve Cunningham. Hi, I'm Graham Weston, and I use the ideas and the ultimate question to build a billion dollars of value at Rackspace. Who are you and what do you do? I'm Graham Weston. I'm uh, one of the co-founders of Rackspace uh, hosting, and um, I'm the founder of Weston Ventures, which is a real estate development company in, uh, in San Antonio, Texas.
0: Well, I know that's understating it quite a bit, but we'll come, we'll circle back to what you're doing right now as we get into the interview. I want to start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up on a cattle ranch just outside San Antonio, Texas. Tell me a little bit about your childhood and how you got the entrepreneurial bug along your journey.
1: Well, I, I feel I was a born entrepreneur. My family ran businesses. Um, my father had a bakery business. We made cookies and he sold his company when I was in in seventh grade. And so after seventh grade... Our main business became the cattle ranch. And so I grew up in the ranch during my, the, my remaining years at home and, uh, and wore boots every day uh, to school. And uh, I was a country kid. And so I, my first business was, was actually selling organic pork through the newspaper. So I would put an ad in the newspaper and sell my, my pigs and take it to the slaughterhouse. And, and they, my customers would go pick up their pork, put it in their freezer. That was my first business.
0: I think I read this on your website. What was the the motto or the the tagline for that the company? Oh,
1: go hog wild! Right, my uh, my classified ad, uh, which was one inch by two inches, um, said "Go hog wild, all organic pork." I mean, I was selling all natural pork long before it was cool.
0: And what was your first job at a, when you graduated from school?
1: Well, I I really started my business while, my first business while I was uh, while I was still in school. I had a, a, a real estate uh, tax uh, advisory business that I started when I was still in college in my dorm room.
0: In your dorm room. How, how did you come up with the yeah. idea for that business?
1: Well, I, I had, I had helped my father uh, with our handling the taxes on our ranch. And after it was such, so complicated and difficult, I thought I could do it for other people. I also had a failed business during college. Uh, I was following in my family footsteps. It was a Cookie business, uh, like like Mrs. Fields' cookies, it was actually cookies and and ice cream, like ice cream sandwiches. And I started that business while I was still in college, um, but uh, that didn't go anywhere.
0: And we, and we don't have to do a deep post mortem here, but wh- why did that business fail?
1: Wrong partner, wrong partner. He pulled in a gun on me uh, the night before we were supposed to uh, open, and uh, we just parted ways.
0: Like a literal gun, or a really a, a, a six literal shooter? Gun.
1: You know, we're in Texas, and you know people have guns, uh, so I'm told, and. He actually pulled a six shooter on me. He pulled, you know, a revolver. He pointed it at my face and said, uh, "I don't like our deal." <laughs> and, I, and so he said, uh, "You know, do what I say, or else, you know, I'm, uh, I'm gonna, you know, face the consequences." And I just didn't. I figured that I was in business with the wrong person. That I think that's a good conclusion. Yeah, yeah. actually, the guy was a famous guy. He was, uh, he was the owner of the most famous bar um, at my university at Texas A&M, uh, it was called the Dixie chicken. And, uh, you know, he was a guy who was used to getting his own way and, uh, you know, he was used to the bar business. So just, I realized I had the wrong partner.
0: If you come back on season two, I think we'll need to unpack into that. that story. A <laughs> it doesn't get more. told very often. And I know, uh, you're, you're passionate about businesses, acquiring customers. How do you find customers for your first business while you're still in school doing the, the course load that you've got? How did you grow that business?
1: Well, you know, I, Fortunately, the tax records are public record. And so I went through the tax records to find people who I thought had uh, tax uh, problems. They weren't taking advantage of the of all of the the way the tax code worked. And and I just called them up. Uh, I also sent out a mass uh, mass email to them. last mass uh, email uh, mass, uh, you know, uh, junk mail to them, basically. And and I got enough prospects. I, I only needed a handful of customers. I think a lot of times people don't realize that they that really they they don't need thousands of customers in a lot of cases. They just need a few. And so I focused uh, for several months on on getting three or four customers. And I by the time I got them, uh, then I had to do the work. And that occupied me the rest of the year. But by the time I was out of school, you know, I had a track record. I had some uh, happy uh, clients and um, I was away to the races.
0: So talk a little bit about the transition from that role and
1: into rack space. So this real estate tax business evolved into, um, real estate investing during, when I got out of college, there was a lot of, there were a lot of real estate businesses going out of business and I was able to find a lot of bargains, real estate bargains, um, And uh, and so my business really switched more to real estate investing. Um, What's so funny is that I had spent hours listening to get rich quick schemes, uh, you know, how to make money in real estate uh, tapes in my car as I drove back and forth to college. And so the fact that I had ended up in investing in real estate, you know, was uh, you know there has to be some credit given to that.
0: And so, so you're into the real estate investing business. I know. I know there's a story around one day somebody comes in with this new business opportunity for you, and it changes your life. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: So the the birth of Rackspace. Um, three uh, college students came over, came into our office and and pitched us uh, the idea for. Uh, they were looking for investors. They were they had been running an internet provider. And they had been designing websites. They had been doing a bunch of things, and they were, but they really felt that there was an opportunity to focus on, uh, more narrowly on what we now call web hosting. And um, you know, it sort of made immediate sense. Uh, My partner and I were looking for business opportunities at that time, and we didn't know anything about the internet, and uh, we were not technical people. Um, I mean, I used to say that, you know, I used to uh, I used to think a hard drive was taking my kids to West Texas. That's the that's <laughs> my joke. But but I what happened was these these young young men came to meet with us. And we we actually spent six hours on a Saturday at a hamburger joint uh, talking about their idea. And it made total sense to us because. It was a lot like real estate. We would go buy servers uh, and people would host their websites on them. And this just seemed very straightforward, didn't seem all that complicated. And and the founders, uh the founders were also they were convinced that we could do it without any people. They thought that we could have vendors put the servers online and that we wouldn't actually have to have any people. And that that turned out to not be true. <laughs> so um, you know, in so Rackspace today is is Nearly six thousand employees. Um, it's around the world, and you know it's very people intensive. And and really, we ended up differentiating ourselves based upon service, customer service, what we call fanatical support. So it really, and we ended up much more uh, people intensive when we started. But but I think that fortunately, the idea made sense from the very beginning. And and also, we, we was in the magic moment of the internet when uh, we we went online in January of uh, nineteen ninety. 9 and within 2 months we had a million dollar business.
0: Wow. And I know that that path from almost nothing to a million and there's that yeah. that hockey stick curve growth that you guys
1: had. I mean today it's well it's well north of 2 billion dollars.
0: Yeah, it's a it's an amazing amazing success story. And eventually joined the business. You became the the CEO of the business and you saw that that growth through to taking a public, private, That's right. um, and uh, now you're in a, a different role. Uh, talk a little bit about the, your passion for building this city, San Antonio. where We're recording this into a world-class uh, tech hub.
1: Well, Rackspace, again, has nearly 6,000 employees. And we were based in San Antonio, Texas, um, which is not a high-tech center. Um, and we struggled to hire the number of people we needed during our history, and when I, when, after we sold Rackspace, I really uh, decided to focus on how do we build a city that where the next Rackspace can be born? How do we do for San Antonio what Dell did for Austin? I and mean, Austin today is, is really a city that it's in its, in, in its magic moment in, in its history. And I think that's really only happened over the last 20, 30 years. And I think Dell had a huge role in that. And Rackspace has had a role in, in the ascension um, of, of San Antonio. What I wanted to do was to capitalize on the growth and the of the huge labor pool of Rackspace. People there are people who are leaving, looking for no other opportunities. There are people who want who've seen Rackspace and seen the success of it and want to start their own company. And so, leverage I wanted to re, leverage Rackspace to try to to take San Antonio into a high tech future. You know, I think really every city has to have high tech capabilities, meaning that if you're if you're selling a product today, odds are you need a website for it. Odds are you need to sell it online. And you can't just have that website built in a, uh, a place like San Francisco. We need websites built everywhere. And we need people who know how to, know how to do a pay-per-click advertising. People who know how to do search engine optimization. These are the modern tools. And every city needs to have experts in these areas. And also, there's so many new business models being built out of the internet whether it's software as a service or whether it's selling book summary subscriptions, you know, these are businesses enabled by the modern tools, the web that is mobile, uh, the cloud, the internet. These are these are the modern tools of business. And so every city needs to have uh, a tech concentration or a tech a ground zero for their tech industry. And that's what we're trying to build. We're trying to build a tech industry, but we're also trying to bring a greater sense of collaboration to San Antonio, to a city that is 2.3 million people, fast growing. Um, we want to be sure that there are lots of great jobs and lots of great opportunity for for uh, for San Antonians. You know, in the years ahead.
0: There's a fun story of how I got to San Antonio. I was in the. Uh, it's Union Station in Toronto, and, I, and you and I had a phone call. And I don't know how we got on the phone together, but I sat there in Union Station while hordes of people were walking by me and making so much noise, and I was worried you are going to get upset. And uh, from the moment that I came down here to meet with you, what I have noticed here is that that real sense of community, that real sense of collaboration. And it's really hard to explain to people when they ask, why did you move to San Antonio? And it really it's really something that you feel when you get here. And I know that you know we're uh, in, and I say we're now because I'm part of this, this story. I like that. Um, it's really, it feels like the beginning of something special. And we could probably spend hours talking about that. But we're here today to talk about how you learn. And I'm really excited to, to switch gears and get into that. So let, let's go back to, you're the CEO of Rackspace you're starting to develop this business, you're going, you're growing like crazy. Uh, What's your learning process like at that time?
1: Well, first of all, for the last seven, eight years, I was not CEO as the executive chairman. But you know, prior to that time, in the first in the early years, I was, I was CEO for six, seven years. You know, really, we were so fortunate that we were at the right place at the right time. Uh, we did web hosting of large websites, and there just was not a lot of... Uh, Competition in the early days. Well, let me say that we were at the right place, at the right time. But there were about 150 other companies that were starting about the same exact time. So we were there at the right moment, um, and competition, you know, ramped up very quickly as we, you know, as we grew. But I think that what happened was in the early days, we were, all the companies were growing, everyone was succeeding, all riding this wave of of internet growth, and. But we also were all doing a bad job. There were so many horror stories about people using uh, web hosting companies that were letting them down. Websites were failing. Uh, people were losing data. Websites were, were down a lot of the time. Networks were down. And so, you know, I would say that we had uh, an equally bad reputation with anybody else in our industry. And and partly it was just we were growing so fast that we couldn't handle all of the uh, problems we were Facing And also there were very few experts in the world who could uh, help us. There were very few networking experts or security experts. And so we were kind of having to make it up as we went along. So one day I got a very angry email from a customer and I printed it out back when you used to print things. <laughs> and I walked down to the, uh, the desk of one, uh, one of uh, the founders and, and said, uh, hey, this customer is really unhappy. Take a look. And he read it through and he said to me, you know, this customer just doesn't know what they're doing. They don't belong here. And, you know, uh, as we'd say in Texas, it got me to thinking. And, uh, you know, it merely made me think about whether that customer really, truly did not belong with us because they weren't technically capable enough. Or perhaps the answer for our business was to serve that customer by using the expertise we had to help them out. And that was really a moment. It really is, to me, is the moment where I started to question our strategy. Remember, the founders promised us that there would be no people. Well, this really was the moment where I had to start questioning whether uh, the model that we had was the right one. Because we had so many angry customers and we were piling up angry customers um, every day. Uh, that is, we, In fact, if you called us, uh, we would get an autoresponder that, that would say, you know, uh, we can't answer our, all of our voicemail, right? And then you'd email us and get an autoresponder that said, "You know, we we don't we get too much email to respond to." So, you know, our customers would be in this in this jail that they couldn't get out of, and we were really probably no worse than anyone else, but we were pretty bad. And so, I think we we decided a matter of months later to change our strategy 180 degrees, going and we went from our denial of service phase in the early days. Uh, where we actively made it hard f- to reach anyone at the company. And we probably all, everybody knows uh, a vendor like that. Everybody knows a company like that. It might be a cable company or, you know, could be a, you know, maybe you bought a camera and you're, you need you need some help with it. Or maybe you need uh, help with your car. Um, you're used to companies that don't serve you well. and We were one of them. But as we left the denial of service phase, um, we really decided that we were going to embrace helping customers. And that meant... Uh, the first thing we did was answer the phone. We literally answered the phone. We took the, the voicemail off. We did not allow our employees to divert customers into uh, an automated attendance system. And, and this meant that we had to commit to answering every phone call. And just that commitment meant that there was no customer who was going to be left in the abyss um, unserved. And we had to really uh, decide, are we going to answer every phone call? We decided we would. And, and have done since that time. And I think that that was really the turning point when we said, look, this is going to be the reason that we're going to be famous. We're going to be famous and recognized as a service company that does a great job and can be totally trusted. And we coined this term uh, fanatical support. Um, the person who actually coined those coined the words is uh, one of my close friends named David Bryce. He's the father of fanatical support, and he actually said to our people uh, when we had maybe five or seven uh, total employees uh, in our support area, he said, our support is going to be great. It's going to be fanatical and put up this big banner on the wall that said Rackspace gives fanatical support. And And I really think that that those words, the words fanatical support, are billion-dollar words. I think that at least a billion dollars of the value of the company comes from that concept. And those two words are the perfect enunciation of the concept. Uh, what I don't even know what to call it—the you know, perfect expression of the concept—because fanatical, you know, is is edgy. You know, it's it kind of gets in your mind, and, and it also you don't normally use words like that. And especially after 9-11, we questioned whether we should, but we really wanted to express our total commitment to being a trusted vendor and provider and partner to our customers, and it worked. Because not only did we say it, we actually committed with those words, and we committed that we were going to absolutely do our darndest every single day to live up to that promise. So, you know, some people call it a brand promise. I think that fanatical support really was our brand promise. It was our differentiator, but it really what we strive to become famous for, and we did.
0: So you start off with a company that – has a very bad reputation. All all, your, all the companies had a bad reputation they did. and you decide that you're going to become a company with a great reputation, a fanatical support reputation. Uh, how did you bridge the gap between one and the other? Obviously this was a learning process that yes. you and the company needed to go through. So when, when the company made that decision, how did you go search out the information or the knowledge that was going to help you bridge that gap?
1: Well, it, it involved, uh, hiring, uh, the leader to do that. Uh, his name's David Bryce. That is, he's the person who came in and and really made it happen. Um, and really, it, it comes down to the strategy, which is how are we going to build the business. The strategy to me is the how are we going to win, and that is what fanatical support was. Then we made fanatical support into, of course, a marketing slogan and mark and ads and copy on a website. But then the more important thing is how do you ultimately make that into into how do you operationalize it and make it true? Because in the modern day, you can't uh, claim something in marketing that's not true. I mean, the internet's going to rake you over the coals, especially in the world of, of uh, you know the current world with you know uh, Instagram and and Twitter and that is all the modern social media tools. But I think that then aligning all the decisions and the the resources of the company, so that you support that strategy. And I think that's that is what I'm really proud of is that we actually not only came up with the right idea at that moment, but also um, turned that into a cohesive direction that the company uh, follows to this day.
0: And so I know one of the the ideas that helped you operationalize that into reality was was NPS. And yes. Let's talk a little bit of how you found the idea. How did, how did you get in touch with the the author or the the creator of MPS? I'm not sure if he, he had written the book before or after uh, you had built that relationship. Talk to me about why that was such an important piece of the growth of the company.
1: Well, you're referring to the net promoter score uh, concept, which I think is very broadly known today. Um, it's a customer satisfaction measurement um, of sorts. Um, but what happened was um, this guy, this man... This God, <laughs> uh, Fred Reichheld, had observed that companies invested a lot of money in sales and marketing and often underinvested in keeping customers. And this, he first wrote about this in a book called *The Loyalty Effect*. And I read that book in the late uh, '90s before Rackspace started. And it really it was a book that that went through the mathematical, uh, you know, analysis of look if you keep customers. You know, if you keep a customer, it's better than having to acquire a customer, which you know seems logical. Um, but he really went into the the rationale on the argument around the notion that that you need that companies need to uh, they need to consider providing a good service to be part of their marketing. And to have loyal customers, um, that is a a bank that was had loyal customers would ultimately become more valuable and and make more money. Than banks that did not have loyal customers. I mean, it, again, it's so simple. It almost is not. It's almost not worthy writing about. But I think that that book really hit me um, because it it said to me that if we can come up with an idea for a customer to serve a customer and actually pull it off, um, if we can come up with something the customer really values, and then actually deliver on it. That we will end up with a very loyal customer base, and this was even more so in the web hosting business because a customer who has a website will likely have one next year, in the following year, and the following year. So loyalty in in the in the web web hosting business meant, you know, mean, meant a customer would stay with you for life, and so because people don't really want to change hosts, if we just did a good job, our customers would stay for life and so it was particularly relevant in a in a business where the customer was you know had the potential to stay for a long long time and you know even in the history of in the history of rackspace very few customers actually outgrew us I and mean, we had customers like youtube that started at rackspace that you know today are are too big for us but most customers didn't you know were able to stay with us you know even though they became huge 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 companies and so Doing a good job really meant that we could enjoy their growth path. And so, uh, so number one idea that Fred Reicheld wrote about is that customers, companies that have loyal customers, are better off than companies that don't. Okay, And, then, and I would say that, that those ideas were rattling around in my head in the early years of Rackspace. But then Fred Reicheld wrote a Harvard Business Review article that then became the book called The Ultimate Question. And that was a turning point to me because it gave a measurement or a metric for loyalty, reputation, and satisfaction. And he distilled it down to one question. You know, normal customer satisfaction surveys would have 20 questions, 100 questions. They would ask you lots of different dimensions of of, uh, satisfaction, and those can be useful. But- the more, but he said that there's really one question that you need to ask that's more important than all of them, which is: Would you recommend this service to a friend who needed to buy this service? And this meant that the, you're asking your your uh, you're asking whether the person is willing to put their reputation at stake and recommend the company. And and I think it it positions the question of satisfaction distills it down to would you recommend this company to a friend so the the net promoter score is is a um, it introduced the concept of a promoter a promoter is someone who loves to talk about your business in a positive way and it introduced the word detractor meaning someone who actively badmouths your business and when you subtract promoters from the detractors you end up with a score uh, a net promoter score, how many people are promoting your business, uh, how many customers out there are saying good things about you. And so it really created this very simple measurement um, that you could also track over time. And you could start to use the net promoter score as a a framework of thinking about how customers buy from you and what you do to satisfy them and what the moments of truth are. Because in every buying opportunity, uh, every buying process, you have you have moments that are more important than others. Um, and how do you ultimately get those moments right? How does a business go and study? How does a business study the entire uh, chain of, of, uh, of the buying process and the, the service process? How do you ultimately get the most critical things right? And, and also, there are some things that – there's some things a customer can judge. Some things come, can, customers can't judge. For example, um, if you hire a lawyer – You know, you don't really know if the lawyer's any good technically, but you do know if they return your phone calls. So I would say to any lawyer, returning phone calls timely is really important. That's because that is one of the most important uh, ways that your customer or your client perceives whether you're a good lawyer or not. So the point of Net Promoter Score starts to give you this, this notion that we need to get those big interactions, the big part of the of the. Of the of the service experience right and um, and also it enlisted every employee in the company to making that making that number better and to ultimately rally around uh, succeeding with customers. So the net promoter score system is done on a scale of zero to 10. so it's possible to have a negative 100 score. It's possible to have a positive 100 score. A world class score is really above 50. Very few companies are above 50, um, but it is also possible to have a negative score. We were talking earlier that um, uh, that Wells Fargo is one of those companies that had a good score a few years ago. And after their recent scandals um, on, in one recent survey that I saw shows them having a negative score. So, you know, it means that at Wells Fargo, think about what that bad score does for them. It means their employees are less, less proud of working there. Uh, their customers are less proud to be banking with them. You have when people are looking for a bank, they're less likely to to uh, get a good reference from an existing Wells Fargo customer. So you can see that all all these reputational and service aspects are affected um, by the the recent uh, Wells Fargo scandals. And of course, it's costing them you know billions of dollars.
0: Yeah, you mentioned something a couple of minutes ago about the idea that it's almost not it's so simple that it's almost not worth mentioning. And I, as you know, I've read. Almost all all of the books. And what I found is that the ideas that are the most important ones are usually too simple to be worth mentioning. And what I've found in successful people like yourself and the other people I've had the pleasure of connecting with is that the idea is the easy part. Yeah. The hard part is now I have the idea. What do I do with it? Yes. And how do I apply it? And how do I rally tens or hundreds or thousands of people around the idea. So I want to talk a little bit about your journey of actually getting this implemented at Rackspace. So take us back to you're you're in this role, the company's growing quickly, and you have this idea in your head that I want to start applying these ideas from Fred Reichelt into our business. What was the first thing you did to try to get that implemented at the company?
1: Well, it, it is true that leadership ultimately decides what the ideas of the company are. And there are probably... 50 great books on customer service. One of one of the most important books on customer service, it was written by um, a professor at Texas A&M where I went to college named Leonard Berry. He's one of the most important customer service experts in the world, uh, in the academic world. You know, he we could have used his ideas. We could have used um, a number of different people's ideas. But I think deciding that you're going to uh, center, you know, when you can find an author that you're totally aligned with, um, that... Uh, that you can center your work around. You know, it meant that we gave the Harvard Business Review article to every to every employee, and we started talking about it, and we started to really engage in in the leadership process, which is the process of sharing ideas and getting people on board, and ultimately pulling all the activities of the company around a cohesive direction. Say, how do we all start rowing in the same direction? And so, I mean, I would say that in the very beginning, it was about talking about what the net promoter score was, putting together a PowerPoint that talked about why it was important, using examples day to day about how, you know, when this number goes up, we all, you know, that's where, that's where raises come from. That's where our success comes from. That's why we're going to grow. It's also, we also allowed us to talk about um, one of the most important things of any small business, which is customer acquisition cost. You know, what does it cost to acquire each new customer? You know, if, if it costs you $100 to acquire a customer, you have to be charging a lot more than that if you're going to continue to grow. So the Net Promoter Score also help, helped us talk about how important marketing and messaging was because the, the words on the website um, were, were important to align the customer's thinking around how should they decide what hosting company to use. So we were using the Net Promoter Score idea to try to sell the customer that this is the way to think about their decision so I would say all of those aspects had to be dealt with. Um, and, uh, and using net promoter score meant that we were able to put a big number on the on the board that said this is the number we want. The higher it is the better. How do we get that number up and enlist every employee, every teammate to to make that number go up and to ultimately help people understand that when we got a 10 out of 10, when we got a, when, when a customer scored us as a 10 out of 10, that was greatness in our world. Not Albert Einstein greatness or not the kind of greatness like the Nobel Prize winner. I'm talking about the kind of greatness that you can bring in your own life at a human scale. The kind that you have with your family, the kind you have with your, at your, with your colleagues. It, I'm talking about human level success, which is let's go out and do a good job and our customers will recognize us and we'll all go home feeling proud of what we've done. I'm talking about that's what Net Promoter Score did. It said, "It said, doing a good job for our customers matters. And when our customer raves about us and they give us a 10 out of 10, that is greatness in our world.
0: As you're rolling this idea out, did you have any resistance from the people who were currently at the, or that were then
1: at the business? You know, I think by the time we rolled out Net Promoter Score, fanatical support was Probably two years, uh, you know, two years old. So we had already decided to change the strategy to follow the, you know, a high customer service, you know, uh, uh, model. I don't remember there being any pushback, but I, I, know that there were people sitting with crossed arms, thinking that this was the next, you know, fad of the moment, um, because especially because it has this, this score. Uh, element of it, I think people were thinking it was going to blow over, which it never did. <laughs> it Never blew over. In fact, uh, we just got more committed to it because we deliberately went to a uh, went to Las Vegas to a conference where the founder of Net Promoter Score was speaking, and uh, we approached him afterwards. And um, actually, Vern Harnish, the founder of Gazelles, a, an important uh, seminar company, you know, Vern Harnish is a thought leader unto himself. I called up Vern and said, "Hey, would you mind?" making an introduction to Fred after he speaks. And so we went up on stage to uh, to meet Fred and we cornered him and said, Fred, we want you on our board. And and he very kindly joined our board first time ever. And he was on our board for 18 years. So I would say our commitment to Net Promoter Score did nothing but go up. And uh, so we, we I would say we we uh, took his ideas and used every drop of them.
0: So it sounds like to me, like you've got this idea, you're implementing it, some of your employees are like, ah, maybe this maybe this thing's gonna blow over because the boss usually comes in with yeah. a new idea every once in a while and We'd, they'll mostly <laughs> blow over. But you, on the other hand, seem to double down on it, and you're hiring the 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 architect of this idea to join your board. Did uh, did anybody drop off when they found out that you weren't going to give up? You were just doubling down, and how did that really uh, manifest itself into attracting the right people into the company? To deploy that idea.
1: Well, I would say that the people who were against it were pretty, kept their mouths shut. Um, but I I think that there was a lot of acceptance. Um, I think there was a lot of acceptance with Net Promoter Score being, you know, one of those core principles of the company. I think what became harder was how do you keep people um, when your score is already good? And our score was, was, was was pretty good. It was in the, the forties and fifties and early uh, in the low sixties uh, or whole history. Um, when your score is really good, it's easy to um, just think you're doing well enough. And I think one of the things that we realized is that it is, even though we knew intellectually um, and we actually knew, um, you know, our Excel spreadsheet showed us that if we were able to, Decreased customer defection by twenty uh, percent. We would have dramatically better uh, profits and better business outcomes. Even though we knew that um, because we studied it, it was still hard to to. We had to constantly hammer on these ideas, constantly remind everybody to keep to keep that as as a focus. And I think to give you an example, one of the strategies. You know, it's easy to think about customer service. It's easy to think about your net promoter score being affected by, you know, answering the phone and and answering questions quickly and, you know, never failing. Okay. But also part of the net promoter score is about finding your target market. When you find a target market who is naturally more loyal and actually values what you do, um, that customer is going to be more loyal they're going to give you a higher score. Even if you're doing the same job as for the next customer, they're going to give you a higher score because it reflects their true appreciation for what you're doing. And so finding the target market that is the right one is is a really important one. The problem is, is that I think that it, it is unnatural for sales and marketing to, to want to forego any customer base. So, you know, every customer comes in Seems like you know another customer worth winning to to sales and marketing uh, department. Um, when actually, you know, when you find a customer who will be loyal and will have you know a third lower chance of of uh, defecting or leaving, um, that customer is more valuable. And but it's it is very it is harder to get an organization to forego certain customer types um, because it's 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 just hard to hard to sacrifice. Um, it's hard to focus on a certain customer base. I would just say we struggled with that, even though we knew that the business outcome would be better if we were more selective. You're you're asking what is the, what what was the resistance to Net Promoter Score, and I would say that the the people at the front lines who were most responsible for that score got it, because they were they saw that they were the people to deliver this great service to their customers, but I think. It was. it's very easy for the company's goals to be out of whack, to have the leadership that is on board, kind of. And I think this is why uh, it, the, it is lack of alignment throughout a company that ultimately results in, in their brilliant ideas not being implemented. So I, for example, just the idea that we knew that some customers were going to be more loyal um, and be happier with us than others, and yet actually targeting uh, or foregoing Big swaths of customers very hard to do. That is, it was hard to do because we would measure um, our customer acquisition cost by you know cost per uh, cost per customer. So it makes more sense to go you know throw a, a wide net out there and bring any customer in. So um, likewise, ne- the Net Promoter Score also introduced an idea called bad profit. Bad profit means a customer who's unhappy with you who, who maybe you have them locked into a contract. So uh, an unhappy customer that stays with you, really you're just prolonging the amount of time that they're going to be bad-mouthing you. So under the Fred Reicheld method, he would call that bad profit. So he would say, if there's, a bad, if there's a customer who wants out of their contract, let them out. I mean, let them go. Move, move on and stop infecting your, your reputation with customers who are angry with you. And so, you know, and I think that's an important thing. So the idea that you're going to actually let customers go when you could keep them in a contract, that is another thing that you know is against the normal business principles, right? So, um, I think that it it really uh, the key for any um, strategy to work is alignment through the organization, where you're making decisions totally in alignment with with the the core principles. And uh, but I would say NPS was tremendously impactful at Rackspace, but I think there were still certain uh, certain parts of it that were hard to implement
0: we've we've gone from the idea which i think we all agree is is a simple idea but a powerful idea like most good ideas we talked about how you implemented it some resistance, but for the most part, you were able to to work through that. Uh, talk a little bit about how you understood immediately or soon after applying it that this was something that was going to work longer term. And talk a little bit about the results that you were able to generate because of implementing and consistently applying those ideas throughout the journey at Rackspace.
1: So I would say that having the net promoter score idea is – is is so simple because it, it's a single number. And it's a number that you can track over time. Whereas if you have 10 different things you're measuring, it's hard to track those over time. Just conceptually, it's harder to think about. Um, in addition, the idea that it's a a net score, meaning you take the people promoting you and you subtract the people detracting you. So you, you can increase your score by creating more happy customers or by minimizing unhappy customers. So It sort of gives you the whole equation in one in one number, Um, as well as it can be negative. So you you can have very wide variations between a team or between one type of customer and another. So it was very easy to understand and implement. That's what makes it so beautifully elegant. And I would say it's you know there are lots of critics of the Net Promoter Score as being too simplistic, and and I would just say that that most customer service Efforts fail because they're too com- too complicated. So I think that the simplicity of it is what helped it catch on, and it's really why it's the number one way of measuring customer satisfaction in the world. I think.
0: And as you as you deployed it at RackSpace, what kind of results would you attribute to it?
1: Profits, growth? Well, I would say because we because we were focusing on creating customers for life as we were trying to create. Um, uh, a great, you know, delightful experience for customers. Our customer attrition went went down tremendously. I mean, it it was rock bottom. It was it was histo- It was low by any industry standard. So we had incredibly high loyalty um, and uh, low customer uh, attrition or defection. So that meant uh, a huge difference. It meant that Rackspace has grown to more than two billion dollars. And really, there's never been a a competitor in our industry that has uh, done that. Also, because we had fewer customers leaving, um, it also meant that the cost to serve those customers were lower. So we had growing faster because more word of mouth and more loyalty. And the word of mouth also resulted in lower customer acquisition costs, lower advertising costs, low marketing costs. It made the sales process easier because we had a good reputation. So... When you add faster growth rate, lower customer acquisition costs, and higher profitability, um, you know all of these things added up to you know building much more value for our for our investors than uh, than than otherwise.
0: Yeah, I think you know as uh, you're listening to this here today, notice that what Graham was able to do is take a very simple, elegant idea, and it was the constant application of it over time that created what would you say, a billion dollars in value for Rackspace? At least a
1: billion dollars. Rackspace was sold for four point four billion billion uh, two two years ago. And uh, you know, of that value, um, at least a billion dollars is associated with the Net Promoter Score idea.
0: And I'm, I, I'm, I've got in front of me an, an email that you wrote to the author of the book, Fred Reichelt. I don't, I'm not going to embarrass you by having you read it. But I'm going to read it because okay. <laughs> I think it's important for, for this to be said. Um It says, I've been thinking about our conversation at the airport. I believe that there are very few core truths that remain constant through time. But one of those is the notion that we must strive to turn customers into enthusiastic advocates who say great things about us to friends and colleagues this is the path to greatness. And I think that really just encapsulates the entire concept of what I was trying to get to in this interview, which is there are very few core truths that really matter. And it is the constant application of it over time that does lead to greatness. And quite often I think uh, people overcomplicate things like you were talking about a couple of seconds ago. Um, There is no other magic bullet out there. Making things more complicated and uh, sounding smarter is not going to solve your problems. It's applying those ideas that you just know to be true.
1: Yeah. I think also that leadership is at the core of leadership is sharing ideas that we're all going to use to build our, our enterprise. And it's very hard to get the frontline employee to care about the 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 profit margin of the company or to care about the customer acquisition cost of the company or how we save money on pencils or on furniture or uh, or office space these are just not very motivating ideas to to most employees and that's why i think most companies just don't bother trying to uh, rally the bulk of the company they 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 count on the company being mainly run by the senior people but i think the more you can harness the the employee uh, the The entire company, every employee. I think the better, uh, the better the company will be. Um, so I think we introduce this idea of 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 striving for greatness because I think everyone wants to go home to Thanksgiving and uh, and and tell their parents that what they're doing, they're proud of doing, and that their customers are really happy and the company has a good reputation. Everyone wants to come work for a company that that is well regarded. You can see this. Uh, well, Wells Fargo has had a scandal. All of a sudden, their their reputation has plummeted. Go look at Facebook; they're struggling for the first time in their history. All of a sudden, people don't face don't trust Facebook and don't hold them in the same regard. This is going to result in much higher attrition of their employees because the average Facebook employee um, is going to wonder whether they want to keep working for a company they're not so proud of anymore. So these these I, the idea that That the company's reputation with customers and the company's reputation out there in the marketplace really does matter. Not just because everybody wants a good brand, but because every employee wants to know whether they can connect the meaning of their life. Can they find meaning in their life being employed by your company? And if you can, if your company can offer that to them, so many great things will come from it.
0: And again, I think you've hit on something really critical there, which is their – Coming back to this quote, there's very few core truths that remain constant through time, and this, it seems like what you're describing is that this idea of net promoter score is not just about uh, getting a number, but it has a, a large impact in many different areas of your company. And there are a few of those ideas that are really that way. Um, I have a theory, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test it out on you and see see what you think. Um, that there are very few of those ideas. There's not a hundred. There's not a thousand. There's tens of them perhaps. Yes. Um, and that in those core truths, there's probably two or three books that have been written that really capture the essence of what that's all about. And that if you were to quickly learn the concepts in those books and then spent the time like you did at Rackspace at really getting great at applying them to your work, that that would be the path to success. Does that kind of articulate what you guys did at Rockspace?
1: Yes, it did. It did. I mean, I would say those core books for us were uh, Differentiate or Die by Jack Trout. That is all about how, you know, how do you be, how can you be famous in the marketplace and how can you build positive perceptions and uh, meaning in, through your marketing. Um, and the other book is, is Now Discover Your Strengths by Marcus Buckingham, um, which is really all about how do we work? How do we use our natural talents and strengths to be as good as we can be? And, and there are other books, but I think that those are the core three for us.
0: So, Graham, I want to thank you so much for being here. Uh, I know you've got to get moving. I think your son has been, has been texting you furiously. Uh, we actually had to send a proof of life photo to him to, to convince him that uh, he wasn't blowing him off. Um, it's been great talking to you, and uh, I hope to have you back on, and we'll talk about those other two books in the thank future. You,
1: great to talk to you. Action Path is a production of Geekdom Media in association with Gameday Media Enterprises. Executive producers are Lorenzo Gomez III, John Garcia, Jason Barrera, and Michael Largent. If you want access to summaries and takeaways from hundreds of business books, check out Steve's company, Read It For Me, at readitfor.me. That's readitfor.me.